Hello, everybody. I'm Adam. That's Brian. Uh, we like to talk about science, so that's what we're going to do tonight. We can talk about other things as well. Sit, sit down, because I feel asymmetric and uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know whether to stand up. I've got to make these not. announcements first, though. Yeah. So I've got this sheet where I have to make these announcements, and they are good things, so listen carefully. <laughs> fire drill, which is statutory. In the unlikely event of a fire, please exit in a slow and orderly fashion via one of the designated fire exits. Uh, here, here, and here. Thank you. Um, and the meeting point uh, in this case will be by the bronze bust of Bertrand Russell. <laughs> which is lovely. Right, there's free Wi-Fi here if you want to tweet. The hashtag is, the hashtag is London thinks cocks. <laughs> and I'm unhappy about that for two reasons. <clears throat> With um, an X. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and also, so this is an event um, organized by Conway Hall, which is where you're sitting, and the Ethical Society. Um, and you can support the Ethical Society by becoming a member. The, I think it's the orange sheets which run everyone's chairs um, if you're interested in living a good life without religion. Uh, Newham Books are in the, in, the, um, in the atrium selling my book, and I think there's another pamphlet there as well, which is also available. They're all signed, so you can pick up a copy. Um, and the next bit is... Oh, yeah, the format of the evening. Right, so I can get rid of that now. Um, we like to do these things where we just talk to each other, right? Because um, we feel that this is... And, and, and you. <laughs> um, <laughs> not just... Yeah, you know, turn my chairs like <laughs> But the types of conversations that we normally have when we're in the pub or when we're, when we're eating dinner, but uh, that you're in, invited to and, and, and can participate in. And as I said at the beginning, we like talking about science. There are other issues that may emerge which are not necessarily about science that we will welcome about halfway through when we open it up for questions. Well, I should say, though, I mean, you're welcome to... So if you've really got a burning question, just shout it out, because it's a, you know, a conversation. So yeah, I'm don't shout it out that, that much. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I sure say, I'm not sure I agree with him. Uh, I should say, <laughs> and I, I, we um, did a, a similar event with, um, with Alice Roberts as well, actually, at Cheltenham Science Festival um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it was right at the end of the e evening, and it was... There was one... We were about two minutes over, and Adam and I went, that's it now. And Adam went, we'll just have one more, one more question from the gentleman in the front there. You went, and he went, bull semen. <laughs> <laughs> and, he was, and, he, and he was just, oh, no, what have we done here? And his question was, um, is bull semen alive when it's frozen? And, of course, the answer is yes, unless it's dead. There's nothing else you can do. If it's viable, it's alive. If it's dead, it won't come back to life. And, and, but it was just, you know, that one extra question. You go, I wish I'd not done that. <laughs> Bull yeah. semen! That was my fault. It was actually. your fault, yeah. So, so no, uh, no one asked that question. So, I've so answered it now. A, a, brief, a brief note about questions. No, a, as he says, no, <laughs> no questions no about bulls. bull semen. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually quite, as a, as a biologist, I'm quite <laughs> interested in semen. I thought you were going to dump quite... I've written about semen quite a lot, um, but, but not specifically bull semen. Secondly, if you do have a question, stick your hand up. Someone will come to you with a microphone. Is that correct? Yes. And make it a question, not a statement. Make it one question. Often, people put their hands up and say, I've got two questions and four statements. You think, well, next. Um, and a theory. And the third thing and is, <laughs> try not to be insane. All right. <laughs> 
<laughs> is that, um, is it? Was it an elk? Is that Python sketch, isn't it? My theory. But anyway, yeah. we won't do that. No theories. You can send Please. them to him. That's fine. Anyway, so the way we, we both of us, so from very different ends of the, of the scientific spectrum, I'm a biologist, I don't know what he does, um, but we both have ended up being interested in <laughs> origins. Different ends of the scientific cow. <laughs> Which end are you? <laughs> I didn't know there was a scientific cow. I think you were groping away, yeah. Right. Um, but, Metaphorical but, cow. <laughs> We're both interested in origins. Both of our books are about origins. Um, and um, uh, I'm interested in the origin of life, and, and Brian's become interested in the origin of life as a result of him thinking that life is merely an emergent property of physics. What, um, what do you think? I also think that. I just don't like to admit <laughs> it in public. That. But why don't you start at the, the real origin? Start at the very beginning. We get Okay, um, my, I've become interested recently in, in um, cosmology, and particularly early universe cosmology. And that's not particularly divorced from what I've done for many years, which is particle physics. One way of thinking about particle physics is that high energy particle physics, anyway, that, that we do at the Large Hadron Collider, is you're looking at the physics of the early universe. And that's basically because we, we collide protons together at the LHC. Um, the beams travel at 99.999999% on, the speed of light, um, at which speed they circumnavigate the LHC, which is 27 kilometers in circumference, 11,000 times a second. And at those energies, when you collide them together, you recreate the conditions that were present a billionth of, uh, of a second after the Big Bang or so. And so you'll, in this, you can think of the Large Hadron Collider as, as, as being a, a time machine, if you like, to look at the physical processes that happened or were happening around a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. Uh, one of the interesting processes is, of course, the, the Higgs mechanism, the emergence of the Higgs particle. And um, a way of thinking about that, by the way, is that as the universe expanded and cooled, then <clears throat> around that time, somewhere around that time, the universe... So, one way to think of it is something crystallized out or condensed out into empty space. Sometimes the Higgs is called the Higgs condensate. So the picture is a, a little bit like thinking about um, a window pane on a cold winter's day. And you see ice crystals form on the window pane. Uh, where did they come from? They seem to have emerged from nowhere, but of course they haven't. It's, there's water vapor in the air. And as you cool it down, the water vapor goes through what's called a phase change uh, and changes into solid. So you see the solid. Well, in a similar way, an analogous way, that's what the Higgs mechanism essentially is about. It's about the universe expanding and cooling, empty space becoming not empty. So in a more technical sense, you could say that the, the lowest energy state of the vacuum is not to be empty. It's to be full of Higgs particles or the Higgs field. Um, and then we get our mass, so you, at a fundamental level, so let's say the electrons in our bodies, get their mass by interacting with the Higgs field. And that's true now. There was a remarkable prediction made in the in the 60s initially by Peter Higgs and others that turns out to be correct. So strange as it seems, uh, in the early universe, this phase transition happened and there's a Higgs field there. So, so that, that's always been my research area. 
But partly as a result of writing books, actually, and partly as a result of filming Human Universe that I was on a while ago on BBC Two, I got interested in early universe cosmology. And what's interesting is that I always, we talk about the Big Bang, which that's happened 13.82 billion years ago, according to the current measurements, which is a beautiful measurement in itself. And if I talk about that in schools or anywhere, really, people say, what happened before? And it's a good question, actually, standing in, this, in Conway Hall in an ethical society. Um, it's interesting to note that Leibniz um, uh, had a proof for the existence of God based on such questions, which is actually, as, as far as I understand, I'll, I'll get this wrong now, because I know it's online as well, so philosophers will go on Twitter and go, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Broadly speaking, as I understand it, Leibniz is, uh, someone will correct me, there must be philosophers, there's a philosopher in the room. Good, right, so <laughs> tell me if this is right. As far as I understand it, Leibniz said, um, things, things can be, if things are not eternal, then they must have a cause. Um, so, oh, he's tough, he's shaking his head. He's shaking his head. Oh, God. He fell at the first As circle. I understood it, Leibniz's point, Leibniz's point was that there must, there must be a cause to things that are not eternal. If things are, log- if, if things are eternal, they must be logically necessary. And, um, <laughs> and the, the universe has some age, and so it must have had a cause, and the cause must be something eternal. Is that anywhere near, right? Well, what did Descartes say? Well, Descartes, as far it's as I can see... It's not a According to... <laughs> according, Why don't you tell us what Descartes according, according said? To, <laughs> he said what? He said he could not prove the existence of God. He could only prove that his Descartes preceded Leibniz. I know that, though. So, I also know that there's a great there's a book by Stephen Weinberg actually it's out of the moment I'm going to put you off topic now but he, he wrote a, a, a history of science which I really liked it was much criticised by historians of science and probably rightly so because he's a physicist but it was, it was a physicist view of the are there any historians of, of science in the audience well yeah well, oh, but one of the no, I said probably right. You know, it's not a history book. It's a, it's, a, it's a physicist view of the history of his subject. But one of the things he said was he said, I think he had a real go at Descartes. I thought it was really funny because I quite like, I quite myself enjoy having a go at the, the ancient Greeks. Because what he basically said was, yeah, Descartes. He, he said, there's a classicist announced. <laughs> but he said, what he said was um, that um, basically, so Descartes, yeah, there the, were the statements such as the atoms exist. So, so that, or, or there are fundamental building blocks of the universe, at least, which is correct. But Weinberg's point was that, th- th- that there were many things that were said that were incorrect. So the, the, the scientific method, the idea of testing these ideas wasn't present. And therefore, if you, big, you have a big list of things that you say, then some of them might be right, but it's not a terrific achievement in itself. So that's what he said. So, so but anyway. that's, that, I mean, that's, that's a bit like Aristotle as well, not to knock the... I don't know who was complaining about <laughs> Sorry. ancient Greeks, though. Yes. But Aristotle is the father of... Most sciences, in fact, but primarily biology, something he's really not credited for, or is, you know, sort of once every generation. He was very much like that. You know, he did, he's sat in this lagoon in Lesbos for eight years. This is him, this is him that's saying this. <laughs> what, what, have I got something wrong already? Okay, thanks. <laughs> it's him that's shaking his head at you. I'm just forgetting, I'm getting history right, you're getting philosophy wrong. <laughs> I did, I, I just, I... All right, well, anyway, let's get back to the point. <laughs> Forget, putting Leibniz aside for a moment. Um, the, so the, the question of what 
caused the Big Bang, or was there anything before the Big Bang, has always been uh, answered in, in the, the strict way to answer it, in, in the framework of Einstein's theory, general relativity, and what's called classical cosmology, is that you don't ask that. Space and time began at that point. And so even the notion of before is, is probably uh, wrong. And actually, even in so-called quantum theories of gravity, it's probably still right, right to say this, that when you get to sufficiently small timescales and small distances in space, then the notion of time itself becomes problematic. So there, there are problems with it. But what's interesting, and, and textbook at the moment, in, in um, certainly advanced uh, cosmology textbooks for undergraduates, is that there was something going on before the Big Bang, if you define the Big Bang as the time when the universe was hot and dense, so that time that we measure back to, it was hot and dense 13.82 billion years ago, then the standard cosmology now says there's a time before that when the universe was doing something different to the expansion that is happening now. And that expansion is called inflationary expansion. And so essentially, space and time were expanding exponentially fast, faster than the speed of light, much faster, driven by some speculatively some kind of field, which we sometimes call the inflaton field. But anyway, the thing was expanding exponentially fast, and then it stopped doing that. And there was, a, there was a, a transition, if you like. It stopped doing the exponential expansion. The energy that was driving that expansion got dumped into space, you can think of it like that, and that heated it up, and that's the origin of the particles out of which we are made, ultimately. So there's something going on before that hot, dense bit which is interesting because we measure the time back to the hot, dense bit. We don't measure what was going on before that. The reason we, it's not an unmeasurable thing though, we, we see the imprints of it, we think, in what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the oldest light in the universe. Um, so we, we have experimental, not evidence is too strong a word, but we have a handle on events that happened before the Big Bang. Theoretically speaking, you can predict things and look at their imprint on things that we can see, and the theories work at the moment. That's the point. So, so that's, I just think one thing to say, though. Go on, then. The interesting thing is, if you ask the question, how long was that other thing going on for, which is a key question, then the, the answer is it's not known. Uh, there's a minimum time that it had to be going on for to produce the properties that we see in the universe today. Um, but there's, there's much debate about um, whether that could have been going on. How long was it going on? Could it have been going on forever? Um, and and there, there are technical reasons to think possibly not, but then some physicists think you can get around them. So it's possible, at least, possible to conceive of a, of, of a, a universe that's much older than the bit we can see, and, and possibly, possibly eternal, although there's a lot of debate about that. So I find that a fascinating So that's not, that, I mean, that's not the same as saying the steady-state universe, that the, the universe has been the same forever, which is what most of the, classicals, the classical scientists thought. Mm. But the other, the other, I mean, the question and why... I'm a mere biologist, so I, I re rely on data. <laughs> and that really is, the, I mean, my question to you is, oh, well, how do we know these things? And, right. and more specifically, how do we know, how much of what you're describing the, in a very physical form, which the, you know, the, we, we then imagine, how much of it question. is derived from fundamental maths? It's a good question, that. Um, th so the, this inflationary idea was, came uh, 1980s-ish. 
And the reason was to initially to answer a couple of very striking observations about our universe that are inexplicable. So the, I, I should just mention what this cosmic microwave background is because it's key. So the idea is as the universe expanded and cooled about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe uh, became cold enough for atoms to form. So before that, it was too hot for electrons to go into orbit around nuclei. So it was uh, a plasma, essentially, and opaque to light. Light didn't, couldn't travel very far through it. But at that time, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, it became cold enough for atoms to form. Electrons went into orbit around nuclei, and the universe became transparent very quickly, actually. And so light could propagate through it. And so we can photograph that light, the most ancient light in the universe, and we have done with satellites like the Planck satellite, which is up in space now. So we have a whole sky photograph of that light which is essentially a baby picture of the universe as it was 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So the, the challenge of cosmology is to explain the structures, the, in, the nature of that light. The, the key problem, the initial problem for cosmologists was this. If you look at it now and you say, where is that light now? So, so, so I can see the light, where did it come from? Well, it's been journeying across the universe since 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Although in some sense that, well, we, we, so, but that, that bit's been receding away as well. So the point is it's about 40 billion light years away now uh, because the universe has been stretching. So if you say, where is that now? It's 40 billion light years away. So if you look over there, that, there's some stuff we can see. And you look over there, there's some stuff we can see, which is also 40 billion light years away now. And, and it was 13.8 billion years away when it was emitted. So you've got two points that have not had time in the age of the universe to talk to each other because they're more than 13.8 billion light years apart. A lot more, actually. One over there, one over there. And yet, they're the same to one part in 10 to the 5. So one part in 100,000. They have the same temperature now, just over 2.7 degrees. And statistically, the distribution of small fluctuations at one part in 100,000 is the same over there as it is over there. So you've got a massive problem, which is how could it be that parts of the universe that have never been in causal contact, they've never been in contact with each other, are the same? It's a, it was a huge problem in cosmology. So inflation was introduced initially. To, uh, one of the problems is to deal with that, which is to say, well, there was a faster-than-light expansion that happened before the Big Bang, before the hot, dense phase. So they were once together. And actually, remarkably, when you do the physics now, when you say, well, what's the... If you ask the question in this theory, what's the patch of space-time that expanded out through inflation and the Big Bang to the thing that we see today, which is that today is 90 billion light-years across or so, containing 350 billion galaxies. Uh, the, the, the question is, we can legitimately talk of it when it was 10 to the minus 26 metres in diameter, which is um, 0.00025 26 knots and a one. So tiny, smaller than an atom, smaller even than the limit on the size of an electron. And we can legitimately talk about that. So, so that was why it was introduced. Um, what's remarkable is if you do, I'll just very quickly, if you do um, quantum mechanics, so you just say, point, you, you, you look at the theories When we're in got. the pub, normally it's more, to, you know, it's more conversational. No, we're gonna, no, we're, <laughs> I'm going to stop in a minute and talk about it. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, though, because you asked the question about the, the evidence. So, so inflation was introduced to sort of do that. So that's not evidence. That's just an explanation of what it could possibly be. But actually, it turns out now that if you do just quantum theory and, and Einstein's theory of general relativity, as we know, and follow that story through, you get 
um, a prediction for the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is exactly what we see. Um, you've, you've got to put in things like you've got to put the dark matter in and dark energy and matter. Um, it's, you've got to put in all the, the, the ratios of, of, of protons and neutrons and to, to photons, all these things in the early universe. You get it all, you tune it all up, and you get exactly the picture. So, so there's a terrific amount of, of evidence now in that light uh, that supports this theory. It's the, it, as far as I know, I think I'm safe in saying it's the only theory we have that predicts every feature of the cosmic microwave background as precisely. And that's not to say it's right, but it's the only theory we have at the moment that does it all. And nine, million years, nine billion years later, the Earth was formed, so we'll just skip over yeah. those. I'm going to do something different here, because why, why don't we open that up for questions right now, because we, we, we probably will oh, then we'll talk, yeah. skip forwards yeah. to talk about other things that are more Earth-based. But um, if anyone's got any, got any questions there's, about... There's, there's one there. If you could just wait for the mic to come for you. There's one right, right here in the third row, so um, just give us a second. Yeah. Can you comment on the phenomenon of gravity waves and how mm -hmm. that shaped time, space, and the universe? Yes, so the question is about something called gravitational waves. So it's a very quickly, Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts them. Waves in space and time, if you like. Um, we've kind of observed them, observed what we... We haven't observed them directly, but we've observed, for example, that if you have... Um, uh, there's a pulsar system, a double pulsar, which is two neutron stars spinning around each other, a very famous system. And so the neutron stars spin very fast and they orbit around each other very fast. And we've observed that the orbit is gradually decaying, so they're gradually falling together. And by gradually, I can't remember the number, but it's something like four centimetres a year or something. I can't quite remember, but it's, it's centimetres. It's a tiny movement. But that's the prediction from Einstein's theory because they lose energy by emitting gravitational waves. So space and time oscillate and carry energy away. So we've observed them indirectly. But there are specific predictions from this inflationary theory about what they would look like in the cosmic microwave background. Um, and there was a story, which some of you may have heard that we thought it was thought they'd been seen by an experiment called BICEP2. It turns out they hadn't, they'd made a mistake in the analysis. And um, so that's still a big one of the frontiers of observational cosmology. Can we see those that it's particularly the polarization of these things, but essentially the effects of gravitational waves in the early universe? Because it's a very direct prediction from inflation. It was a really good example of science occurring in public as well. The way BICEP were a little bit robust in the way they announced that they thought they had detected gravitational waves. BICEP was an um, Antarctic-based telescope, uh, which is no longer there, I don't think. I think it's been de uh, decommissioned. Sure. Um, and it, this, I mean, this was the big story in March 2014. And what I think one of the great things about it is, is that the analysis occurred in public, which is how all science, I believe, should be done. Because when you make extraordinary claims, see if you can end that sentence for me, you need extraordinary evidence. And what happened was, it, they, were, they were wrong. It turned out it, it wasn't calibrated right, and they were actually looking at dust, local dust in, in, in nearby systems. But what had happened was, they made an extraordinary claim, we scrutinized it over the, I say we, physicists. Um, 
Astronomers scrutinized it over the course of the next year, and it turned out to be wrong, and everyone won as a result. And the BICEP team ended up collaborating with the Planck, with Planck team, who were also looking for gravitational waves, previously having been uh, not in conflict, but not buddies. So it, it's, um, I, I, I don't understand many of the things that Brian says. <laughs> but but what, I can, what, what I think is important about, one of the things that I think is really important about that story is that it showed the nuts and bolts of how science should work. Make claims, mm. demonstrate that they're wrong, make more claims. Yeah. yeah. That's a, a key point, actually, about public... You hear it in the context of, um, sort of controversial areas, or politically controversial areas, like climate change or things like that, where, where you, get, you get papers published... Uh, but being a peer-reviewed paper doesn't mean it's right. In fact, it's more than likely, in fact, probably virtually all of them are wrong in some specific sense that we've ever published, because we don't have any fundamental theories of nature that we think are absolutely right. So, but the point is that um, peer review gives you a minimum bar that at least it's not obviously wrong and it's not completely mad and some of your peers have said it's, it's reasonable. Yes. But the, the reason you publish it is so that people can check it. That's the point of scientific publishing. Yes. That's how science works. It's worthy so, of entering the scientific literature yeah. is, is the bar that we're looking for. And it was a devastatingly depressing... We've got some major problems in science and we may or may not talk about them. Um, but, you know, for all the beauty and the joy that we derive, people like us derive from understanding, trying to understand the universe in this process that has evolved over the last few thousand years, mm. we do have some major problems. There was a paper published this week in which a Norwegian researcher had taken three top cancer journals. Do you see this? No. T three top cancer journals and compared all of the data, the photographic data of cells expressing various genes that were published in in these three cancer journals. And he discovered that 25% of them were duplicated in, other, in the same journals. Um, which is, you know, that it, it would be going too far to suggest that this was fraudulent, but it's not good news, that. And what, do you know what he did? He wrote to the editors of all, all the journals and with details of every single paper, and he wrote to every single author of those papers. And nine months later, he hadn't had one response. Hmm. So, in terms of uh, you know peer review being the marker of things being correct, it is not. Well, then, yeah, in principle, point, it is a marker of something being worthy of, en of entering the scientific discourse. In practice, worthy of cross-check. Sure. Yeah. yeah. In practice, so that, that, we've got some issues though. Yeah, and that's why I'm um, just to add to that. That's why things. I was at a meeting the other day with um, about government advice, so scientific advice to government. And one of the points that came out was meta-analyses are really important So b because of this. So single papers don't really tell you anything. And the press are to blame for this, and universities in part. The fact that, that the press releases go, we've just published this paper, means that, that, that those results will be reported in the press. And because they're in a peer-reviewed journal, people tend to think, well, they're, they're, they're true then. So it might say, you know, chocolate, eating chocolate is good for you, I don't know, because one study had said it. When in fact, what you need to make statements and to make policy is an analysis of a lot of papers, because that's where you get the overview of what the current status of our knowledge is. And that's why the IPCC reports are important in, in climate change, because they're not individual 
they're not work in themselves, they're meta-analyses. So they're a snapshot of the best you can do at the time, and that, that's what you need. And they yeah. don't exist in most fields, actually. Yeah, small, underpowered studies are the blight of my life as a geneticist, and, and I think various other fields within the biological sciences are also blighted mm. by these, because they look like, you know, sexy results, attractive results, which are, which are worthy of entering the mainstream press, mm. when actually, at best, they're you know, conditional, and at worst, they're probably underpowered to the point of being sure. wrong. But, uh, you know, I, I teach from my students this, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the we're talking about genetics, I'm talking about genetics now, but um, the concept that there are genes for individual behaviors, individual diseases, individual traits, complex traits like inheritance, there just aren't, right? And the whole history of genetics and the whole history of understanding families and how characteristics are passed down from generation to generation have sort of culturally conditioned us to think that they are. But science is, this is something that I say quite often, science is the opposite of common sense. It is there to, to show us that our eyes can easily be deceived, right? That we're not very good at perceiving objective reality. And the process of science is, is to so, allow us so to, to, to get past our own prejudices and our own biases. It's interesting, actually, because I said in an interview recently in The Guardian, which was actually did report what I said for once, that, um, <laughs> the, the, um, that science was common sense. What I meant, though, is that it's common sense. I meant it was, it's quite a humble and, and, and careful pursuit. So it's, it, and I, I likened it to plumbing, but that's because I've got a plumber in my house at the moment who's really meticulous. And I thought, I, the, the way that, just the precision with which things are done. So, so what, what I meant, so what I meant is science is common sense in the sense that if you want, you, you look at something, you want to carefully measure it, and you just careful and you check yourself and you make sure you don't make mistakes. But you're right, the, 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 the conclusions you come to often are very far from common sense. Like quantum theory being an example. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, most of the universe is not the way we see it. Yeah, yeah. And most of the universe we haven't even seen yet. It's true. Right? We've seen its influence. Well, I want to ask sure. you a question about genes, because I want to do some biology. So you could say, I, I, I'm reading about this, so you could say first, what is a gene? Yeah. And how does a gene get, the, which bit of DNA, how does the DNA get read out? That process is fascinating. So why don't you talk a bit about that, the underlying Yeah, well, you start with a difficult genes. question. I mean, what, what is a gene? It's, it's one of those questions where you teach, now some of my, my school pupils are here, so the ones who haven't done their exams, you have to ignore this bit. Oh, so so you've, got the, yeah, you've got the A-level bit, but now this is the real bit. <laughs> it's yeah. not gone into the syllabus yet. Is that the... We don't really have a good definition of what a gene is. <laughs> right. Right. In the same way well, that we don't have a definition of what life is, and we talk about, we, we will talk, talk about often that, about, you know, this, this seems to be like a fundamental problem. Actually, I don't think it is, and I think, in general, definitions offer constraints and not insight. The, there's a nice, um, there's a nice uh, anecdote about this, which is that when, just before the human genome was published, which was 2001, there was a big meeting, as happens every year, at Cold Spring Harbor, where all of the top geneticists in the world were there, plugging away, trying to get to the point where they were ready to publish the first draft of the human genome, one of the great achievements in the history of science. And um, a, a then young researcher, a guy called Ewan Burney, who's now a very senior um, researcher in, in genetics, he was a PhD student at the time, and he, was, he, he looked in the bar. Everyone who's a scientist knows that all the best and most important discussions at scientific conferences happen in the bar, um, or in the cafe at, at CERN, mm -hmm. right? And he, and he looked around and saw all of these amazing geneticists there, and, and uh, one of the big questions about, about the human genome before we knew the answer was, how many genes do we have? We are complex, sophisticated, 
biological organisms. We think of ourselves as being more complex than most other organisms. I think there's a, possibly a, a little bit of um, anthropocentrism in there. But nevertheless, our concept of what a gene is should be reflected in the number of genes that we have, right? So, you and Bernie took around a betting book, and for, for a dollar a bet, he asked all of these, these geneticists, the top geneticists in the world, to predict how many genes we had. And the top number was something like 500,000, and the bottom was something like 29,000, but that was an outlier by someone who was just betting low to win. And the average came out at something like 70,000. And the answer was 21. <laughs> thousand, thousand, right? Which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's around about the same parts as a double-decker bus. And it is fewer genes than a banana, or rice, or the fruit fly, or the water flea, Daphnia, uh, or most plants, almost all trees, because they do really weird things with their genes. And so, it just turned, don't, that, don't put that in your, in your answers, all right, to AS2. Why, what right, do you, do what not do, you do that, because they won't pass. What do they, you have to put in your answer? You have to put what it says in the textbook. And what is that? 21,000. Anyway. Um, well, that's what you just said, isn't it? It's all right. Yeah. Put what the textbook says, right? <laughs> um, uh, anyway, the point was, we didn't. It's a, another good scientific problem. The press at the time, I was doing my PhD at the time, and I remember the press at the time describing this. Well, what happened was, you had Bill Clinton on stage with Craig Venter and the head of the Human Genome Project. Bill Clinton saying things like, today we have discovered the language in which God created life, right? Um, <laughs> and then he said, um, he said something like, within a few months we will have identified and, and cured all Inherited diseases, at, <laughs> at which point... Actually, that wasn't Bill Clinton, that was a BBC report that followed it on the news, at which point, you know, every geneticist in the world went, what? <laughs> I was working on a gene on chromosome 14 at the time, and that's all we knew about it. We didn't know what direction it pointed in. You know, we, basically, he said it's a timescale of two months to cure the disease that I was working so, on. So does a gene code for a single protein? Well, kind of. Mostly, yes. In a simplistic way, a gene is a unit of information which is transmissible from cell to cell and from generation to generation. And, and that will usually build a single protein? Normally, yes. Normally. So the corresponding number of proteins that we have roughly corresponds with the number of genes that we think we have. But there are many, as you know, biology is a science of exceptions. Yeah. And there are many, many caveats and exceptions to that. On that betting book, which I've got a slide of, but not here, um, the, the top page says, how many genes do we have, one dollar a bet? And the rest of the page is caveats introduced by academics who, are, who, who went around saying, well, what do you mean by gene? So they had to write down another definition, and the next person will say something Well, then there are these intron things in the middle, aren't there? That, 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 yes, um, yes. And so you have, so, so um, a, a human genome, many genomes of eukaryotes and, and um, large organisms, are the genetic information is made up of small chunks of coding DNA 
hidden within large chunks of non-coding DNA. And the gene can be split. It can be split in many different ways, and it's assembled. So there's junk in the, the middle. So there's some yeah, bit, well, we don't call it junk and you've got anymore. to take well the introns are they called something? We don't really call it junk anymore. It used to be called junk. Um, it's not. It's best to refer to it as non-coding because junk yeah. implies it has no function, and the, we don't know what function it has. So there's lo so another big revelation wasn't just the number of genes that we have in the human genome. It was that almost none of the human genome contains genes. Yeah. So less than two percent of the whole 3 billion base pairs spread over 23 pairs of chromosomes, less than 2% of it is actually coding DNA. Now, Which means that less than 2% of it codes for proteins. Right. But the other stuff might do something. Well, we know what lots of it does. It's amazing how in 20 minutes we've gone from the origin of the universe to quite complex genetics. Um, I just find it interesting. Well, we, do we you find it interesting? Do you find it interesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So, <laughs> I'll keep going then. Um, we know what loads of it does. Right, so chromosomes are complex three-dimensional structures, and they're very active. Um, so when you see the beautiful double helix, that iconic structure, it's almost never like that. Okay? It, it just, it, in cells, it is almost never like that. When you see those pretty pictures of chromosomes arranged like, you know, little X's and little crosses arranged in, in a nice order in 23 pairs. It's almost never like that as well. I mean, during the cell cycle, you know it's almost never like that, don't you? I'm looking at my students here. Um, and, and it's really dynamic, and it's, it's being un, un, uh, unfurled and unrolled and spun out so that the genes are exposed and can be translated into proteins yeah. at all I, times. I like what um, Matthew Cobb, who's a friend of ours, a professor at Manchester, said in a talk at the Royal Institution last week, that it's, the thing to understand about DNA, which I didn't know a, a while ago, is that it's, it's not a code, is it really? It's actually uh, it's a machine, as well. it's, a, it's chemistry, isn't it? So it's actually, these are chemical reactions that are happening. It's not just, yes. it's not like something reads out a code. And then, and then translates it into some... I know it does with I, RNA, but... I, I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I, th I know what Matt's point was, and I, I, I think I'm not sure it's useful, him saying that, because I think in, in terms of base, the basics of understanding how, um, how information is transmitted from generation to generation, and that turns into working biology, I think it is useful to think of it as a code, because the DNA itself doesn't really do anything other than encode information. The beauty of the structure of the molecule and why that was to... For, people like me, the most important um, discovery in the 20th century and possibly any century, is that the, this structure is inherent to its function. Mm -hmm. So the, the reason it's a double helix is because you know, it's a twisted ladder and the struts of the ladder uh, can be um, split apart, but the rungs are made of these individual chemicals called nuclear bases, and there are four of them, you all know this, I know, um, and there's A, T, C, and G, but they pair up in a specific way. So A only ever pairs with T, and C only ever pairs with G. So if you take your ladder, split it in two, what you have is A's and T's and C's and G's on this side, and, which means you know exactly what the missing information is. And that is the process of replication. Every time a cell divides, every single piece of DNA in every single cell that is doing it does exactly that. It splits it in two. And it's a means of main, making sure that you have the same genetic information in, in a parent cell and a daughter cell. But the other clever thing is that the second important thing which is inherent to the structure is that those letters in the middle are, are, a, are, a, are a code. I'm, I'm happy saying it's a code. And they encode proteins, and proteins are what life is made of or by. Now, my interest, and I think yours as well, 
is, well, this is an incredibly complex system. It's beautiful, it's elegant. We know loads about it. Um, but there's an unbreakable circle there, because you need proteins in order for replication to occur. And the proteins are encoded within the DNA. So how did it start? Mm. Because at the origin of life, we didn't have proteins. We might have had nucleic acids like DNA or something a bit similar, or maybe RNA or something even more, more basic than that. But you need proteins to make DNA, and you need um, DNA to encode proteins. What's, what's interesting is I, I'm making, I've, I made a program on this. I've almost made two now, and I'm making another one now for BBC One because I find it so interesting. And, and I think we both think... So the, the answer of how life began is nobody knows, but there are a few plausible theories. And I think the one we both think is most plausible is one that's very forcibly advanced by Nick Lane at UCL, but many others, um, which is that... And we were talking about this earlier, actually, about organisms. It, how do you understand an organism? Um, you can't understand an organism if you look at it now, a frozen thing, like a, a human being, and say, why is a human being like that? Uh, organisms, in my language, are four-dimensional things. In other words, you need to understand their history. If you can understand... It's, it's, there are a lot of frozen accidents in biology, and there are a lot of processes that occur in organisms that aren't accidents but you need to understand something about way back. And in the case of the origin of life, um, you have to understand something about the the, the, what the conditions were like on the Earth four billion years ago. What I find most fascinating, though, is that, that this theory is that those, the things that happened four billion years ago, the chemistry of the Earth as it was four billion years ago, are frozen in, are present in our cells today. And you, so to understand why our cells do the things they do, you need to know how life started and what it was doing four billion years ago. And that's a, a fair summary, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So yeah. I'll give you yeah. and the example that I find mo most persuasive is its use of um, protons. So it's called chemiosmosis, isn't it? That's right, isn't it? Chemiosmosis. So if you look, there's a f wonderful number, um, which is that every one of us now, a human being, is pumping about 10 to the power 21 protons per second across membranes. So, so that's um, 10 to the 21, what's that? That's a, a, a million, 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 it'd be 10 to the 18, so it's a thousand million, million, million protons. So it's within a few orders of magnitude of the number of stars in the observable universe, every second being pumped across membranes. And we work, and, and all living things, I think with almost no exception, <laughs> work by doing that. And then the protons cascade down, essentially like falling down a waterfall, and we stick some enzymes in the waterfall called ATP synthase, and we make something called ATP, and that's the battery of life. So you say, why? On, uh, because, because our basic, the power source is respiration for us, right? Which is just oxidation. It's a reaction. It's about electrons moving around. So it's, why, do you, why do you go from just burning food, which is about electrons moving about, into pumping protons around, which you then do something with? And the theory is that that's because it's telling you about how life began. The theory is that life began in vents in the deep ocean four billion years ago or so, almost as soon as it could on Earth. Uh, these vents were alkaline vents, which means they're deficient in protons, and they were emerging into an acid ocean, which has got an excess of protons because the oceans were acid at that time. 
And you get gradients of protons, lots of them, not very many of them, in pores of rock. So you get these water flowing through little pores of rock. And you get chemistry driven by the gradients in temperature and protons. And that chemistry um, was where life began, where, the, where these things began to happen and the advanced chemistry began to build up. And because that's where it happened, that's what it's like today. Because yeah. essentially life just put a bag around it and took it away from the <laughs> vents. But it was a cellless chemistry, the basic building blocks of life happening in the chemistry of vents, without cells and without DNA, just building until you get some replicating molecule and off it goes. And my book describing that is available in the foyer. Um, oh, it's in your book. Did I do all right? Because yeah, that, that's what I thought was a pretty good sense. I find it quite wonderful. See, the thing is, though, and I think this, this refers to something you said earlier, and a, a, a friend of ours who says that all models are wrong, and you have mm. to stick to that in science. All models yeah. are wrong. And um, that is what Nick says. So I think we agree that that is probably the best model that we have, and it's almost certainly wrong, but that's what we're working on at yeah. the moment. And one of the reasons, well, I'm, again, I'm interested in the process of, of discovery and how science works, and this is a relatively new idea, partly because those hydrothermal vents, the white smoke. Oh, the proton gradient, you just said the proton gradients aren't wrong. I mean, that, that's oh, how no, no, cells no, no, work. Oh, no, no, sure, you're sure. Yeah, that so is we know absolutely. All cells and it is like effectively that. universal. Biology is quite good at universal rules, except all of them have exceptions. Um, but that's definitely right. I mean, what you've just described as the biochemistry is exactly right. And it is what we think happens in these white smokers, these hydrothermal vents. But they were only discovered in 2000. Yeah. And we haven't really explored them very well because they're, they're quite difficult to get to, being at the bottom of the ocean. They're not very stable. They're stable for thousands of years, but not tens of thousands of years. Um, but it's a, it's a relatively heterodox view, this. It is... I, I argue that it's right, um, and it's the best model that we have. And I'm, I'm happy to say that because all the other models that we've ever worked with are definitely wrong. Yeah. And so the same history. as inflation in that sense, actually. Right. It's very similar. That this reproduces the data that we see, and there aren't any other games in town really at the moment. That's exactly it. That's exa there aren't any other games in town. But culturally, it's been really interesting because for 150 years, when we talk about the origin of life, which I do quite a lot, people Im immediately say primordial soup or, or primeval soup, which is the concept that if you get the ingredients right, invigorated by a bolt from the blue, if the conditions are right, then life will emerge. Now, it, it's... It's, it can't be right, right? It can't be. Darwin first described it, he, he, and, and Darwin was right about almost everything. Um, but that's not true, by the way. I just love that guy. Um, but uh, he described a warm little pond in a letter to his friend Joseph Hooker in 1871, and sort of set the ball rolling for this to be the dominant theory in the origin of life for the next 150 years. And it doesn't. It doesn't adhere to what we know about physics, about fundamental laws of the universe, which are non-negotiable. But more importantly for me than that, it, which is, says something about the culture of science and how we should do science, it doesn't, it doesn't do what life does. Mm. Right? We're not powered by electricity in, in that sense. We're not powered by heat. We're not powered by UV either. And all, all of the models of the origin of life which are primordial soup-based, which get published on a monthly basis to this day, all depend on things that life doesn't do. Yeah. And the universality of the process that Brian was talking about just then, chemiosmotic coupling, is what life does. But and protons to translate. 
Yeah, right. So the base, basically, the idea that you've got more hydrogen um, nuclei protons on one side of a gradient than another, and the flow from that high concentration to a lower concentration powers, it's kind of like a, a turbine, powers and generates the energy that, that cells use. And almost without exception, all life does it. So for 100 years, we've been researching uh, the origin of life by looking at things that life doesn't do, which is dim. Right, that's a stupid way of, about, of, of going about it. I should say, actually, Adam mentioned one thing there. I mentioned earlier that there are no laws of physics that we would consider absolute. There, is, there are also exceptions in physics. There is actually one that we, might, we probably do consider absolute. It's called the second law of thermodynamics, um, which essentially means that things tend to get more disordered over time. And the reason we think it's absolute is it's a statistical statement, essentially. Um, so most physicists, I think, probably all would say if there's one law that we expect to be a law, really a law, it's that. And life, at first sight, appears to run counter to that. Uh, we are obviously very ordered structures. You know, the human brain is a... I said in the presence of Alice Roberts, it's the most ordered structure in the universe, and she said, no, it isn't. An elephant brain's more ordered. And she's like, wrong about that, and I checked it out, and she is wrong about good. that. Good. <laughs> mammalian not brains, here to defend herself. But. Mammalian brains are the... But anyway, so, so we're ordered structures. But what we do know in physics is that if you have out-of-equilibrium systems... Right, so gradients, be the protons or whatever, then you can, you can generate local order. Right? You have to, you do work essentially. So it's, it's literally in a physical sense that you do work and you can generate local order. At the expense of more disorder elsewhere, it has to be said, but you can generate it. So you get systems that become spontaneously ordered in the presence of gradients. And that, that's the key point, I think, isn't it? It must be. We are incredibly out of equilibrium systems. Yes. Everywhere in our bodies, we're working, most of the energy we get from our food is, is taken up, main, keeping us out of equilibrium so that we can do things. We, we're, we're a process. That's it's right. It's living. I think and when you die, said, it, it's a great quote. He said, really, the question is not what is life, but what is living. What is living. That's process. exactly right. And when you die, that process stops and we become eventually in equilibrium with the rest of the universe and we succumb to the non-negotiable law of the second law of thermodynamics. But the beauty and the thing that I love, I absolutely love this concept, is that that process has been continuous for four billion years in a perfect, unbroken chain. Mm. And, and it happens in every single one of your cells right now, and every single one of those cells was born from an existing cell, which ultimately goes back to the, your fertilized egg that you grew from, which ultimately goes back to the fertilized egg of your parents. And you can trace that pathway where every single one of those cells was doing exactly this process mm. and DNA replication all the way back four billion years to the origin of life. And it is unbroken. There are no cells, according to how we understand how life works, that don't adhere to that, to that model, which is an incredible thing, hand up straight away. There's one, he's a biologist. There is one, yeah, there's one. Well, why don't we have a couple <laughs> questions anyway? What time yeah. are we at? Just yeah. quickly, tell me, what, what's, um, what's the timing on this? My question is referring back to the universe. Um, I wanted to know what you're, um, what you're thinking about parallel universes. Parallel universes. There are different kinds of parallel universes. So one of the, regarding inflation, um, what, there's a thing called the inflationary multiverse. 
um, which is, so I, I briefly said there's this thing that's expanding exponentially fast, and then it stops, and you, and, and you get a hot and dense thing, and it looks like the Big Bang. Um, many of those theories, so that, that's textbook, although, as I said, with appropriate caveats, many of those theories are what's called eternal inflation theories that suggest that the inflation doesn't stop all at once. It essentially stops in patches. You can think of it. So you can think of a, a bit of it stops, and you get a universe, a Big Bang, and the rest of it carries on, and then another bit of it stops because it just randomly drops down and stops, and you get a Big Bang, and you get another Big Bang, Big Bang. So these things, you get this fractal tree of universes. So it's called the inflationary multiverse. So in those pictures, you have an infinite number of universes, essentially, and they'll be happening all the time. So that would be going on now somewhere. You'd have new universes, and there's inflations going on, and the patches where it stops are the places where you get this reheating, essentially this, this big bang thing, and, you, and it all slows down and gets more sedate, and you can have stars and planets and galaxies and things like that. So that's one of them. Uh, probably the, the other one you might be talking about in quantum mechanics, there's an interpretation of quantum mechanics which suggests that um, everything that can happen happens essentially. So you get essentially what's called a, a multiverse, a quantum multiverse, or a many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, where essentially you have this tower of universes in which all possibilities play themselves out. So there are different kinds. I do kind of believe in. I, I think I believe in Let's let both other of people them. have questions. So the next question was a meet. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, is there a microphone up on the, yeah, up the, up in, the in the cheap seats? That's because it's a very powerful okay. secular building. This, this gentleman, this gentleman was, was so we're, you and then this gentleman get a mic had his hand up. All right, Hello. then we'll go up there. So go ahead. Yeah, I was just um, <clears throat> interested in, if you're interested in learning about um, the pineal gland and dimal tryptamine and how people, you know, experience looking into different dimensions that way. The, the, yeah. the pineal? The pineal gland, yeah. And right. How people, they, there's a, a plant in the Amazon where people have tried this plant medicine called ayahuasca and they say they can look into other dimensions and stuff. <laughs> it's a bit more sort of... Well, we well it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the pineal gland. I'm choosing to ignore parts of that question and, and <laughs> in order to be polite. But um, the gentleman up there first mentioned Descartes, right? And Descartes is a big problem for uh, consciousness, is, a, is a, an area that both of us are also very interested in, you know, particularly um, in, as it relates to artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, Descartes, we didn't introduce it, but he formalized the idea that the mind and body were split, Cartesian dualism. Now, he thought, he proposed that the pineal gland was the source was the external, well, internal source into which the soul flowed. About right? He's going to say no. No idea about that. And there's a wonderful painting by Rembrandt called The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Damon, which was huge but was burnt in a fire in 1629. Are there any art historians here? Okay, 1629. And all, all that is left of that is this anatomy portraits were very important at that time. Um, but it's this, um, it's a, this amazing, amazing um, uh, anatomy lesson. And what it is, is showing the um, executed corpse of a criminal whose name was Black John. And in it, Dr. Damon, the anatomist, is trying to find, we think, is trying to find the pineal gland. On the grounds that Descartes, who was not a contemporary of Rembrandt's, but was, was part of that culture at that time, came before um, uh, Rembrandt, 
was effectively looking for the dualist's soul. Next question, please. Yeah. Yes. No, hold on a sec, though. This gentleman really was first up. You are next. Him first. Okay. Where, is there a mic up there? Oh, you're okay. next but one. Wait, wait for the <laughs> mic so the guy, whoever's got the mic has the next question. It's like Lord of the Rings. Hi. Flies. Lord of the Flies. Sorry. <laughs> right, so... This has gone weird. <laughs> I was wondering, where would you put viruses in the evolution of life? I mean, you were talking about life and how it evolved. Uh, where would you put viruses? That's a great question. And the answer is we don't know. Um, so the, which is what the answer to all the best scientific questions. So the consensus is, the general view by biologists is that, that viruses are not considered living. They are parasitic on living things and are not capable of self-sustaining their own life. Right? That's the general view. It's not, it's, it's not a view that, is, um, that, that people fight desperately about. It's just that that's a useful way to think, of, think about it. In gen now, I think the number is that for every living organism that we know of, there are at least two viruses. Um, and it's likely to be much greater than that. So what that does is poses a number of problems for us because we see the origin of viruses as being very, very early on in the origin of life. They contain DNA and RNA, um, but they're not, not cellular. And so we don't really know how to position them on what is broadly referred to the tree of life, but as we, we are learning from our, our colleagues, from people like Nick Lane at the moment, the tree of life is probably a, a not very helpful thing, a bit of a misnomer anyway. anyway the point is, it depends on what you think living is. And if you define life, or if you look at life as being something in accordance with the second law of thermodynamics, which is capable of extracting and parasitizing its own environment, then viruses fall into that. So the answer is we don't know, but if you, if you, um, if you want to get a really big research grant, you could spend the rest of your life trying to answer that question. Please do. Hello. Hello. I'm the man with the mic. Um, Adam, uh, thank you for calling attention to chemiosmotic coupling and the flow of protons across membranes, because that was the theory of my very dear friend, Peter Mitchell. Oh, Peter Mitchell, the greatest Nobel Prize winner that no one's heard of. Oh. Well, I, I knew him intimately, and I wrote his obituary in The Independent, and uh, he spent 20 years crying in the wilderness, being called crazy, struggling mm. to persuade his very thick-headed colleagues about that theory, and they, they had to admit that he'd proved it in the end. So it, it really thrills me to hear you both praising that theory and spreading those ideas. And it is wonderful. I have a question for, uh, having made my statement, I have a question <laughs> for... <laughs> hey, that, for was, that was a good statement. That was a, that, that was a good one. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, just briefly as an, as an interlude, um, Peter Mitchell, who I, I didn't know, um, well, obviously, but um, he was often described as quite irascible. Um, no, he was very gentle and modest and self-effacing. He wasn't irascible at all. Oh, well, really? Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, see, I, I, I didn't know that. Not like you. <laughs> yeah. Nick Lane describes him as irascible. Well, he's wrong, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. There's evidence well, he, that. He might have been irascible to other people. Um, Allow the question. Honestly, honestly though, chemiosmotic coupling and his work um, is as important as... Crick and Watson's 
and the Human Genome Project, and probably Darwin's. And it is just not known. You know, it's not known in the same way that we are bewitched by the double helix. But in, and it's important for the origin of life because it has to have come before DNA, RNA, genetics, cells. If it didn't, none of this shit works, right? <laughs> so if you want to talk about the origin of life, you have to start with proton gradients and the work of Peter Mitchell. Well, that's wonderful that you say that. Keep saying it, too. <clears throat> in fact, I've been going through a lot of Peter's papers that he gave me, and I'm, I'm working on a, on a kind of popular account of his things at the moment. Oh, but um, I, back to my question to yes, Brian. But, um, I mean, we could talk about Peter forever. Um, Brian, I want to ask you, 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 you said, you mentioned plasma in passing. Um, not too long after the universe was created according to the Big Bang Theory, you mentioned that there was plasma which then became physical matter. Now the problem is that 99.99% um, of the universe still is plasma, so what do you say? Still, right. Have we not got solid yet? <laughs> 99.9% uh, no, of the universe is still plasma, you said? Yes. Uh, that's not right, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, you might mean if matter... So, well, I should just say why I say that's not right. I mean, maybe you're asking a different question. That it's not right because if you look at the breakdown of energy in the universe, then we know that of order, 70%, a bit less, is dark energy, and 25% is dark matter, well, and 5% is normal matter. I'll rephrase matter. it by saying 99.99% .99 of what could be detected... Is yes, known, so you're talking about the matter itself. ...is known to be plasma. The whole yeah. question of dark energy and dark matter is a separate issue, yes, well, well, well said. But, but <clears throat> speaking of what's been detected and what yes, we know yes. exists, I, I thought, yeah. uh, rather than what we postulate, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> would you like to revise the statement about plasma having become matter? Because... <clears throat> from yeah. what we can detect, physical matter, as we exist in this room and on this planet, is so rare that it's less than 0.01% of the universe and is okay. very uh, abnormal. Well, yeah, so I, I think you. what you're saying is that if you look at... You're talking about matter that's gravitationally collapsed into stars and planets, um, and you're saying that the interstellar medium outweighs that by a large factor, I think is what you're saying. Uh, he's taking the microwave, the, the, the microphone away now. Okay. Um, I, I'm not sure I fully understand there's a contradiction there. I, I think what you're saying is that most of the mass in the universe is, is, is ionized gas, and, and so that very little of it is in stars and planets and things like that. But I, I don't see why... Yeah, well, the stars themselves, yeah, plasma, yeah, you're right. The, what, what, all I'm saying is that the, 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 this, this, what we're talking about here is the, 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 the universe before this point where it was cold enough for atoms to form and, and afterwards. And so, so the only statement is that before that time, then the universe was opaque because there were lots of free electrons around. And after that time, there weren't that many free electrons around. Um, and so it's... Ah, I know what you're asking. So then there's, then, <laughs> then there's a time when the stars switch on. So this is way before there are any stars. So, so this, is, this is just a universe 380,000 years after the Big Bang when the, there are no stars and no galaxies, nothing is cl clumped together yet at all. So you get this point where you get the, the, the atoms forming and the, the free electrons aren't around. Then you get the stars turning on 
and then you get the what you say that you get the plasma in the stars in the stellar medium but as far as i understand it then what we're talking about here is that because it's the time before the stars then you have um, a universe through which light can travel unimpeded because those free electrons aren't around all over the place and then the stars switch on but you need to give that that's um i'm not sure when the first what the best number on when the first stars appeared but it was a, a long time after that so i think if I understand, that's, that's what you're asking. Okay. Um, so, so I think the mic was there next, Hello. and then I think it's down here. So so, sorry for shouting out earlier. Um, back to the vents and the cascade of protons. Is it something that could be replicated to test? Yes, uh, about, about uh, 450 yards from here, the, in UCL on Darwin, uh, in, in the Darwin Building on Gower Street. That experiment is happening right now by Nick Lane, who I've, I've written about in my book, but he's also written his own much better books, um, given that he does the actual research. They have a bioreactor. It's called a bioreactor, which sounds quite fancy, but what it actually is is a jar with... Um, <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's, it's quite unsophisticated bucket chemistry. But that's important, because that is what... You know, the origin of life did not occur in a sterile lab. But inside that, you have, so, so it's got various pipes and tubes which uh, are trying to emulate exactly what we think occurred in the origin of life in those white smokers, those alkali hydrothermal vents. And uh, in it, they are not just doing the bucket chemistry of what might have occurred. They're testing, Nick is testing individual chemicals and adding various bits and small variables to see if you get molecules out which are look like the precursors of biochemistry. So the origin of life really is the study of the transition from chemistry to biology. And if you can begin to detect molecules in these systems, whatever the systems are, that look like biology more than they look like chemistry, then you're onto something. So yeah, we await those results uh, with bated breath. Thank you, though. Thank you. I think the next one yeah. is, whoever's got the mic, go ahead. Um, this is a question for Brian, um, kind of slightly changing the topic a bit. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts were on the Rosetta mission and the possibilities of it. On Ro Rosetta. Uh, Rosetta. Oh, Rosetta. Yeah. Yeah. So the comet lander and fillet. Yeah. Yep. It, it, it's a, it, it's a potentially sort of, I think, will change our view of the of the uh, early the origin of the planets and the solar system. The point is, the simple point is that these things, these comets are pristine material from the early solar system. So they've not been you know, changed, they've not, they've not done what planets have done and they've been out in the, the icy reaches of the solar system. So, so the idea that they're pristine material means that you're, you're looking at the solar system as it was um, when it formed. And I uh, I think some of the big questions are what are the organic molecules like on that comet? Um, is the water... I think this is already... The reason I was stuttering there, I think, I think there's a published paper that showed already, I think it's from that comet, that the water is not the same as the water on Earth. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's in right. terms of the, the, the isotopes yeah, that are right. in the water on Earth. So, so that already... It, it doesn't suggest that... There's a theory that the Earth's oceans came from a bombardment where comets essentially brought the water back in. So the, the early Earth was very hot. The water would have been driven away from the hot young sun. And then the water came back through cometary impacts. 
I think that result doesn't rule that out. It just says that that kind of comet was not involved particularly heavily in bringing water back. Mm. Maybe there are other kinds of comets that did. So it's all, this is new science and I'll heavily caveat it at the moment. So I think with those questions, what's the, water, the composition of the water, what, yeah. the, what are the organics on the comet, etc. It's a very important for that and to demonstrate where the water on Earth came from is a great question which many people argue about a lot. And the, the, there's plenty of, well, there's plenty, there's good evidence that water trapped in the rocks that, that coalesce that formed the Earth is enough water to actually populate the oceans of, of the early Earth. And some people argue that the Earth was watery from very soon after its formation. Mm -hmm. But then what you have is a period called the Late Heavy Bombardment, which runs from about 4.2 billion years ago to 3.9 billion years, so 300 million years, where the delivery of comets and meteorites from space onto Earth was enough to, um, uh, to melt all of the rock on Earth and vaporize the oceans on a sort of monthly basis. If life had emerged on Earth before that, then the impact and the energy delivered by the late heavy bombardment is enough to sterilize the oceans you know, every few months. Right? But the question of whether there is delivery of interesting um, potentially biochemical, biochemicals from space is an important one. And it seems unlikely that given the amount of stuff coming from space and landing on Earth in, during the period of the late heavy bombardment, it seems unlikely that those ingredients were not part, part of that, including water. But, you know, the question was about, about fillet, and, you know, that answer looks like the, the dirty ice that is on that comet, P 67P, is not is not the same as the water that we see on Earth, but a negative result is as good as a positive result. So, you know, we keep looking. Science is cool. <laughs> uh, who, whoever's got so the mic? We'll take one down there, and then there's one, there's, there's one up here. So... Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess that's a good segue to bounce us back from the cosmic to the cellular. What I've always been sort of curious about is um, we sort of understand now, to some extent, the mechanism of aging and how sort of the cellular clocks cause cells to expire, but I've always wondered about where the imperative for that comes from, since the reactions are sustainable, the DNA is replicatable, uh, obviously with some degree of mistakes happening along the way, but I, I where do we the find that bit. imperative? Aging. Oh, aging. aging. Yeah. Yes. Where, where do we see the, sort of that imperative to expire show up in that family tree? <laughs> I'm not sure we do understand why aging occurs. I mean, I think we've got a good idea of why, of what, what the mechanisms are. So there are various cellular processes, the, the most iconic of which is the loss of telomeres in, in chromosomes. So these are the, these little caps on the ends of chromosomes which basically stop the chromosomes from fraying. And through every cell division, they get lost, and eventually you get to a point where you've got none, the chromosomes start fraying, and you get mutations, and the cell becomes what's known as senescent, which is incapable of dividing once again, um, so you know, we, if you the, the best the, the best analogy for these is to is is the, the sort of plastic cap on the end of um, shoelaces, right? If you lose that, the shoelace frays and the shoelace stops being. I wonder why you. I thought you were just tying your shoelace nonchalantly. It's <laughs> really really stiff leg at the moment. I just had to move. Thank you for that planted question. So. Um, the, I think we've got a good idea of the mechanisms, or some of the mechanisms, um, why, of what happens when we age. But it's a very good question as to why it happens.
sometimes. I mean, there's not an evolutionary selective process going on. We don't really know what death is in the same way that we don't really know what life is. Um, and, you know, the best way to look at it is as a, a transition from chemistry, uh, from biochemistry to chemistry at the will of the second law of thermodynamics. Right. That's a bit hand wavy. Well, that's what it says in the Bible. Right. <laughs> 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 I think it's. I think that's one of the apocrypha yeah. stories. <laughs> um, so um, you know, there's in, in non-cellular terms, there's lots of interest in why we continue to exist after we've reproduced. And from 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 a social Darwinian point of view, we've got lots of theories. They are they are all theories, and none of them is is demonstrably. Uh, correct. I mean, there's things like the grandmother hypothesis, which is that, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, grandmothers stick around after they've be, after they're post-reproductive in order to uh, maintain the, uh, the the flow of their genes, which they share in high proportion with their grandchildren, onto the next generation, which is the the will of biology. So, um, so you mean the grandchildren are more likely to survive? If there are grandparents to reproductive age. Yes, although it's specifically grandmothers for reasons that I'm not sure about. Um, I don't know the answer to that, in fact, because it's not really my area. And then there's why, why sex in the first place. Yeah, we don't know why sex exists, right? I mean, it's, sex is a perplexing thing from, an evolution, from a straightforward evolutionary point of view on, on the grounds that it's just slightly absurd to have two individuals. Not, stop thinking like that. <laughs> slightly absurd to have two individuals making one, right? That's not an efficient process. Um, fun though it is. <laughs> so, but again, you know, it looks like I think the best models, which as we said earlier are probably wrong, but the best models that we have are likely to be to do with the efficient transfer of energy, right? So the, the, the introduction of the mitochondria into, uh, so, so the origin of complex life should we have another question? Or yeah, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Basically, Let's see if we can get away from God to that but one. Yeah, the answer to your question, as with yours, is yeah. we don't know. I, um, I'm afraid I'm going to be a bit greedy and ask you both um, something. Two separate, very small questions, though. Um, any ideas, Brian, about um, what, uh, if we have any clues about what determines whether um, an electron or a photon would behave as a particle or as a wave? And Adam, a question for you. Sorry. Um, why on earth do they teach at schools still about the primordial soup in every single exam board or GCSE or A level? And can, do we know enough to start teaching children and students about the electrons and the chemical yeah, model? It's a good question, isn't it? Mm. Should, I mean, the, the first question is just a very brief, I'll give you a two minute introduction to quantum mechanics, which is what the question is about. So, uh, quantum theory is. In my view, and my, my colleague Jeff Forshaw, with whom I do research and write books, and we wrote a book called The Quantum Universe, and, and our central view is particles are particles, right? They're, they're particles, literally, things. And quantum mechanics, when viewed like that, is a theory about how they move around. So, so the, the central thing in quantum mechanics is and this is the way we teach it, actually, in, in the first year, because I, I lecture it in Manchester, is we, we say, so the central question is, given a particle here, what's the probability it's going to be somewhere else at some later time? And there's a rule for that, which is, uh, was first written down by Richard Feynman in that language, um, which is so just a computational rule. There's something interesting I said there, which is the, 
the part that, that causes, or, or gives quantum mechanics its strangeness. I said, what's the probability it's going to be somewhere? So that's the difference, really, between quantum mechanics and Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics, you know, if you've got a ball and you throw it, or if you put a ball down on the table, let's say, then it will stay on the table. And if you throw it, it'll follow some path through the, through the air. Whereas in quantum mechanics, it's, uh, it's about probabilities. And that was introduced into the theory because nature demanded it. So I can't tell you why that is, but the theory gives us a rule, which is given a particle here, what's the probability it's going to be over in this region over here? The weird thing is that in what's called, putting relativity aside, so the basic quantum mechanics we had in the 1920s, if you ask the question, what, if I put a particle precisely there, what's the probability it's going to be somewhere else at a later time? The probability is anywhere else in the universe with equal probability, which is very strange. And that gets modified when you put relativity in, but not completely, actually. It can still be rather far away, although it's unlikely to be so. Um, that's the uncertainty principle. And what's interesting is that, so the wave-like behavior of particles, when you're talking like this, emerges as a result of, of the mathematics. So, so the wave-like bit is, is emergent. You can, you can derive statement, you can certainly derive the uncertainty principle, which is often presented as a wave-like idea. You can derive that. Um, you can derive uh, essentially the Schrodinger equation, which is also, with, with some, you've got to make some assumptions, but broadly speaking, you can derive it. So I would say that particles are particles. We have a rule which is nature has given us, which tells us the probability it's going to go from one place to the next. And what Feynman tells us to do is, if you want to know what that probability is, it's going to be over here. You have to calculate every possible route it can take from there to there and add them all up and you get the probabilities. And that, that, that works, basically. So, um, so I would say that the, the, I don't see there's a, an idea of sometimes it's a wave and sometimes it's a particle. Uh, if, if, if you do essentially the, the way quantum mechanics, the way Richard Feynman showed us to do in the 40s and 50s and onwards from there, then it's a particle, but the wave-like theory emerges, I would say. Does that mean that the particle-wave uh, duality is a misnomer? I, I think it is. I mean, it's some sense semantics. Um, and it, historically, it was done, so you look at Schrodinger and you notice that these particles behave in a wave-like way. So Schrodinger equation is a diffusion equation, actually. But it, they have these wave-like properties. And, and you can certainly teach it that way. But if you go to what's called the, the principle of least action, this way of doing quantum mechanics that Feynman did and turned into quantum electrodynamics, then you really do have particles hopping around. And what we show, I'm not, it's not an advert for my book, which is available in the foyer, this book, um, the, the, the Quantum Universe, which is apparently quite, I think it's quite a difficult book, actually, in, in hindsight, but it, but it does do this. So it goes, particles are particles, let's find the rule that tells us the probability they're going to be somewhere else, and you get the wave-like properties emergent from that underlying single rule, which is to do with a, something called a, an action principle, which are fundamental. You can see the fundamental, actually, because uh, the Planck's constant used to be called the quantum of action. It's got the units of this quantity action, which is an interesting thing. Anyway, okay. anyway. There, was a, there was a very quick question about why don't we teach the primordial soup? Why do, oh, we, yes. why do we teach the oh, well, that, Wait a minute. Do we, we don't, I don't think we do, do we? We do. Um, are you? <laughs> well, so the question is directed at you. Why do you teach it? <laughs> no. Um, well, you look, I mean, 
there's, there's a couple of things to say about that. One is that science progresses slowly, right? And what makes it into textbooks happens at a, at a, at a, at a very slow rate, you know, slower than research is done. I'm kind of okay with that. Um, the, the, the second thing I think is more interesting, which is that the, the name primordial soup was, was invented by a guy called J.B.S. Haldane in 1924. And he and a Russian guy called Alexander Operin in, in, independently um, began to develop Darwin's idea of a warm little pond. And they did it in a scientific way rather than just merely speculating, which is what Darwin was doing in that letter. And what Haldane was doing was looking at what we then thought was the early composition of the Earth and speculating that these were the right ingredients in the right proportions. Now, it's wrong for the reasons that we've discussed. It can't be right for the reasons that we've discussed, the second law of thermodynamics and proton gradients. It doesn't do what life does. But he did something. He gave it a name, right? He gave it a name which is quite sticky. It's quite a nice name. Everyone knows it. It's got the word soup in it, and everyone loves soup. And I say that, you know, trivially, but actually it's really important because often in science and beyond science, when you give things names, especially interesting names that people can remember, the ideas that underlie them sort of travel with that cultural meme. And it happens all the time. Primordial soup is one. The number of times I get asked questions about epigenetics, which I think is a vastly overstated field, and used to be called gene regulation, but gene regulation isn't very sexy. Epigenetics is incredibly important, preempting a question somewhere. It's incredibly important, but it's not mysterious, right? And it, and it only became mysterious and part of the public consciousness when everyone started talking about epigenetics, because epigenetics sounds cool. Um, that's not to downplay all of the important research that goes on into epigenetics. It's just that, just like with primordial soup, these names become sticky, and, and we hang on to them because they're memorable. And often it's deeply, deeply problematic for the actual progress of, of, what, of trying to find out what is correct rather than what is attractive. Because in science, we're not really interested in whether ideas are attractive or not. We're interested in whether they're right. Right? Not wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's better. Yeah, yeah. N not wrong is the best that we can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Go on then. Uh, we, I reckon we got time for uh, a, couple a couple more. Whoever's one, got the mic. Should we have, a mic? have you got the mic? We shouldn't ignore that side either. We could no. go. We could go from. All right, we're going to go there, there, and there, and then down here. But obviously, once we've gone from there to there, in the time it takes to go from there to there, we can go to there. Physicist. See what I mean? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, all, it's all relative. Yeah. Um, but quick, let's, let's try and cram as, as much in as we can. So, so quick questions. Okay. My question just seems, it doesn't quite seem like a good question. But hold, hold, the mic. <laughs> hold the mic close oh, to your face. I kept hearing something called a singularity, right? That before um, the, the universe began, there was a singularity. Mm. Now, did this singularity come before or after the expansion? It's a, it's a brilliant question, that. So it's the, the first thing to say is that what, what singularity has a, has a, it's a mathematical meaning in, in, in Einstein's theory, in any theory where, where infinities happen. So, so essentially you say that as everything gets infinitely dense and infinitely small and space-time curvature becomes infinite and, that, and that's what singularity is. So um, that's a breakdown of the theory, signaling a breakdown of your theory. Um, but if, if you're referring to that as the, 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 big, the point of origin, as it were, the, the Big Bang, then um, we, we know that the Big Bang, the hot one, except in inflation, 
we, we know that there was something before that. There's no singularity in there. There's a transition through. Whether there's one back which starts off inflation, a friend, one of my colleagues calls it the mother of all big bangs, was the one of those that set everything off in motion. I, I really, it's just not known. Um, singularities of, yeah, they, 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 what they signal though is not really something about nature. They signal that your language is, is broken and you need a better theory. It's a catchy word again. I mean, it makes reference to the earlier, the earlier well, answer. It's got a mathematical it, definition. Sure, but so does epigenetics and yeah. so does primordial. Soup has a technical definition as well, but that's only for cooks. Come on then. There's someone have a Two mic more. Here. Whoever's got the mic. And then we go in. There's, someone's really dying to ask um, a question over there because they've been asking for about yes. all the time and we can't see because it's over there. So gentleman the with the beard anyway, and then the gentleman with the um, sort of I don't peach t-shirt. I don't know who it is, but anyway, yeah. Yes. Hello? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Hey. Um, I just really love when we get together like this, there's, there's so many influences and people like we're talking about Descartes and everything. Um, thinking about Peter Mitchell, um, not necessarily a science question, whether it's someone when you're working, looking over your shoulder from the past, it's like whether you want to call it a muse or whatever, um, is there someone basically I can Google the shit out of tomorrow who will <laughs> distract me when I'm really bored at work? Someone, an unknown gem. Unknown. Well, that's that a different inspires you guys. other than Peter Mitchell. Um, um, well, that's a good question. I um, think <laughs> we'll come back to that. Let me think about it. Sorry. I mean, you could. I mean, they're, they're interesting, but I, I mean, I at the moment, as I said, I think that um, Adam's book obviously is very interesting. Nick Lane's recent book I'm reading at the moment, most recent, which is called The Vital Question. I think is it called? It is. It's really that quite deep. And, and very a detailed exploration of these ideas, of Peter Mitchell's ideas and others. It's a really quite a difficult book. I love the book because it says at the start, there's, there's some, he basically says, I'm gonna, I'm, I will use some jargon in this book uh, because it's the way I, I just have to write. I don't want to explain it myself all the time. If you don't understand it, look it up, which is great. And then the other bit, he says, there's a great sentence where he says, in my book, da, 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 and he says, this is my book. So the... <laughs> like that, it's just wonderful. It takes no prisoners in the book, which I really actually, like. actually though, that, that, that in terms of that sort of circular referencing, that has happened to me with the guy I was going to suggest. So great unsung hero, massively unsung hero of science, because no one's ever heard of him. But uh, we learn about cell theory at school, and in the textbook that we teach, it um, it, it refers to uh, Schwann and Schleiden as being the, the birthers of, of cell theory in the 19th century, around about 1838. Uh, but they got one key part of it wrong. And that bit was filled in by a guy called Robert Remack. And Robert Remack was a Polish Orthodox Jew who came to Berlin, which is where all this stuff was going on in the mid-19th century. And he, uh, through very careful observation, in his attic, because he was Jewish, he wasn't allowed lab space, and he wasn't allowed a professorship. But in his attic, he windowed developing eggs, which is a technique still used today. You can cut a sort of square out of the egg and you cover it with sellotape, and it means you can do experiments or observe the growing embryo. But he observed red blood cells in the chick dividing, and that was the formation of new cells. And from that, he came up with the missing part of cell theory, the, the second or third grand unifying theory of biology, which is that cells only ever come from existing cells, right? Now, he was ignored. And his colleague, whose name was Rudolf Virchow, who was 
uh, a very well-to-do German and younger than him with a professorship, ignored him for a couple of years and then decided that it was correct and published it and became a superstar and his book was a, uh, a bestseller. Now, Virchow wasn't entirely a bad guy, but in this case, he was a total shithead. Um, now, that's Robert Remack. So I'm on a desperate quest to re-establish Robert Remack as being one of the fathers of the most important areas of biology that no one's ever heard of, along with Pete Mitchell. Emmy Noether, that's a good one. Uh, Emmy Noether, she, she was showed that the conservation laws, like the conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, all these things, conservation of angular momentum, uh, have a, a relationship, a deep relationship to symmetry. And it's fundamental to modern theoretical physics. And so if you've got someone you might not have heard of, uh, Emmy Noether is a, is a good, good place to start. Oh, no, I was going to say about circular referencing. I was looking something up about Remac. And, you, you said know, do quick questions. I know, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> I was, I was looking something up about Remac the other day when I was writing, and um, there was a reference, it was on Wikipedia, and there was a reference to it at the bottom, so I followed the reference, and that was to a slightly obscure article in a sort of academic journal, and there was a reference there at the bottom of, of it, and, and there were, I think, two more steps in the reference chamber, because it was pissing me off by this point, and the final reference was that I had said it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> it was BBC Four, so it's probably correct. It's the, it's the last. Finally, we've got there. there. Sorry. <laughs> oh, just bellow. Just shout. So, I'll repeat it. In the, the origin of viruses. How they came to reproduce. How they came to. What do you mean? The mechanism of how it works now, or how it how they uh, they got that process in the first place. <laughs> well, yeah, we know exactly how they work now. I mean, they're incredibly clever. It's an incredibly clever system, and they work in various different ways, but broadly, a virus which is very simple. It contains some genetic information, but the only genetic information it contains is to reproduce itself uh, by adopting, by, by um, annexing the existing cell machinery of the cell. So what it does is... You get these little viroids which cling onto the surface of a cell, inject their DNA or RNA, because many viruses are RNA, and th that DNA and that RNA integrates into the host cell, and which then reproduces itself, which includes the instruction to destroy the cell. Right? So it reproduces itself by the absolute bucket load using the own cell's machinery, and then destroys the host cell. When we get viruses, the immunological reaction, the sniffle that I currently have, is our cells being destroyed by viruses and our immune system trying to clean up, clean up the mess. Um, so that's, how, that's broadly how viruses work. How they came to develop that? I don't know. I don't think we know, but I certainly don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to is, is it. What time is it? it do we have time for one more? Does anyone want one more? One more? Does anybody want? <laughs> oh God. There are lots of questions. Does, any, does anybody have any appetite? We carried on for another couple of minutes. Or do you want to go away? Or do, or do you, carry on for another couple of minutes then, because there's a lot of questions. Feel free, if, if you need to go to the pub, no one will be offended. If you want to, but if you, <laughs> go on, we'll, we'll take another couple then, and then we'll... Call it a day, but it really, honestly, yeah, yeah, you want to go? Right. Got uh, yeah. So, 
how do we combat, combat feedback shop run? How do I stop my friends giving money to psychics? So, so the, 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 the question, for those of you who didn't hear it, was there were a lot of words that are sexy, quantum being one of them. And, and how do we stop um, charlatans or people abusing these words and, and taking them away? Um, and, I mean, my... I have two sort of sort of opinions on this because in one sense it's sort of it doesn't matter if you're talking about I don't know sort of oh I don't know what the the age of the Earth and someone says it's six thousand years or something and it, it it doesn't matter what they think it does matter when it obviously in that case when it spreads into education then it matters a lot but it, there is a serious side I think when pseudoscience affects public. Um, understanding of and respect for actual science because then what you do really is you you you, you open the the floodgates and it's not clear then if, if it's not if you don't know what a scientific statement is you don't know what the scientific what it means to say scientific consensus which is even a dirty word in some political circles then there's a big problem especially if you're talking about public health policy or um, climate policy etc so i think that's where the the problem is, actually, I, maybe pseudoscience can be seen as a gateway to relativism and a gateway which is, I think, there's a, then, then we have a huge problem because we can't function properly as a scientific society. Um, there was a second part of that question, which is how do you stop your friends giving money to psychics? Get some different friends, mates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or become a psychic. <laughs> That's a much better idea. <laughs> Economics. We could set that up. We could set up a business. Yeah. Rutherford and Cox. Psychics. Maybe we should. Maybe we should just say that. Go on, do uh, two more and then we'll stop. We'll stop. This gentleman was, has been... Oh, no, has been oh, and and I've, you've been quite keen for a while. So, gentlemen, lady. Hi. Hello. <clears throat> Uh, just a quick question. You both are scientists and men of reason, right? <laughs> men of reason. Men of reason. Men of reason. Okay. Men of reason. Yeah. Am I right in saying that? It depends what you're going to say. Yeah. You're gonna okay. derive, <laughs> if you derive something strange from that statement, I will deny <laughs> that. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> are we. Sorry. Are we as humans would be ever lucky enough, what's your opinion on this, to ever have gotten rid of religion from the world? Or is that, do you think, will ever be possible at all? I suspect not, and I'm not sure that I would want that. Because in many ways, religion has provided us with a cultural framework in which we live. We are a deeply, although I'm an, obviously an atheist, and I suspect most of you are as well, um, given where we are, I, 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 I profoundly and deeply value the cultural contribution, contributions of, of Christianity to the life of this country. And I would love to see people be not shackled by holding on to medieval superstitions. <laughs> Feel free to chip in. <laughs> I, was enjoying it. I, I agree with you, actually. I, I, I agree with that. 
what we said. Um, my, I disagree with, my wife disagrees with me on this, so, th th but I, I shouldn't say that, should I live on the... Pointy eye like that. Can't come back you. Me. You. Do, do. But you. I, 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 I agree. I, I think that the, clearly... The, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree with Adam. I, th I think it's wrong to... The, what we're really talking about, I think, for me anyway, the, the issue is how do we get rid of fundamentalism mm. of any type, actually. I, I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea that I strongly believe in, actually, which is that societies like ours operate according to a consensus. So there's, there's a cultural consensus, with it, and that's what we strive for as a democracy. And that means that you're going to be on the tails of these distributions on some issues. Everybody is. And actually, one should celebrate that because that tells you that you're operating in a, in a democracy where, where, where as many uh, belief systems and opinions as you can uh, are embraced and not, and not violently opposed or suppressed. So, so, if, so we have free speech, for example, which is absolutely central. That means that you're on the tail of a distribution sometimes, you will be offended by things sometimes, you will offend others sometimes. And I, that's to be celebrated, I would say. Um, yes, I think that's good. I can't remember what I was going to say now. Let's have another question. Um, this lady here with her hand, hand straight up. Yes, go ahead. Shout. Yes, I got it wrong. Well, no, you didn't. I put energy. They got it wrong. Okay. Let me tell you why. It's interesting that. So we, let's just explain that. The que it was five so questions about what, what people... Go on. The little background is that um, on uh, the Today programme last week, John Humphreys said something really ridiculous to Matt Cobb and Nick Lane, actually. And a lot of people made fun of it. He had a very strange moment where he thought that the, the whole genetic code of life on Earth had been transmitted from an alien planet. I don't know why he thought that. So, so a lot of people had it. They were going, so, so Radio 4 said to me, why don't you go on and educate John? And, and so one of the ideas was, what are the, the, the scientific ideas that you, everyone should know about? So what I said was that there's a, there's a very famous, it's in page one, I think, of the Feynman lectures on physics, which are wonderful things. And Feynman says, if all human knowledge were destroyed and I could choose one thing to preserve that would give them the clue, this, that, that as they rose again, what would give them a clue? What would the clue be? And if I said everything is made of atoms, then that would be the key that unlocked the door. So then that civilization could then rebuild a lot of the knowledge that we have. So that's what I said on Radio 4. So I didn't say everything's made of atoms. I said exactly what I've just said, that that's in the Feynman lectures. I think it's a good idea that that's the piece of knowledge. If I could give one, everything else, the door's open from there. So it's the wrong question. Everything isn't made of atoms, of course. Uh, we know now that atoms are made of other things. We know there's dark matter and dark energy and all these things. So it's not right. But it was copied down by the Manchester Evening News. And that, that happens a lot, actually. I, I think it's one of the great um, dangers of, 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 of speaking on the radio and saying things. I've seen it often with things. People paraphrase it in, in, the, in, in a newspaper and write down half of it or none of it. I'll get it wrong and not give the context. And uh, so it's an example of that. So it's wrong. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so um, me and my friend were then debating 
as physicists, we were like, well, Brian Cox has got that wrong. So then, what if, if you were talking to a room of physicists or various scientists, what, what would you say is fundamentally everything in the universe is made up of? Because what, where do you go with that? Like, do you go for well, light made of bosons or do you go in terms of quarks and... And well, we, I mean, you so, so you could say uh, the, what we know at the moment is the, small, the, the fundamental building blocks as we found them are quarks, the standard model of particle physics. So the six quarks and the six uh, leptons, the so-called the electron, the muon, the tau, and the neutrinos. And so, so that's, that's the, those are the smallest things we found in inverted commas. We, we haven't found any substructure in those. So you could say that, but we might expect their substructure. I, there but could becomes well a metaphysical so. question at that point, though, doesn't it? Because until you find substructure, to say that this is fundamental is, is unjustifiable. Right. Uh, yeah, so, so, so we call them the, but, but the, the, you're right, so saying the fundamental building blocks, it's kind of a phrase, phraseology. It means that, that those are things that we've found and we've not been able to see mm. any substructure in them. So that, that's what It's a semantics saying. and naming problem it's again. It's actually not everything in the, the universe, words. I should say everything in the universe isn't even made of those though, because we know there's dark matter. Yeah. And that, it isn't made of those, but it's definitely there. The word so atom so. means uncuttable, right? Yeah. Which is... You know, it's a, it's a naming convention which didn't work out that well. <laughs> so but that's why, I mean, I'm, this goes right back to the start, isn't it, yeah, when it I was does. saying about Democritus, wasn't it, who said that everything's made of atoms or uncuttable things, um, which he had no evidence for. And, um, it's a good guess, though. <laughs> well, it, it, given the context, turned out to be right. Yeah. <laughs> right, we, well, I think we're going to uh, stop. Got one more and then we've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, um, who really wants to ask a question? There you oh, go, right, that go one on. there. Sorry. No. Hi, thank you. Um, so this talk was sold to the public with a sideline that there might be a discussion on how we can make the UK a sort of hub of scientific excellence within the world. Yeah. Um, now, with so much of the UK scientific funding coming from the EU, what's your view on the possibility of the UK leaving the EU after 2017? Oh. <laughs> That's an easy one to finish off with. It's a really easy... I think it's a really easy answer. It'd so be, do I. It'd be disastrous. Um, I mean, just, if we just stick to science so we don't broaden it. it you're right that we, are, we, we attract, because we're excellent and we're efficient and we're good at science, we attract a lot of money in competitive EU grants. And it would be a big hole in, in our science budgets if we were to leave the EU. Yeah. Science is a truly international endeavour. And extracting ourselves from any international community for whatever reasons is only going to have the effect of restricting the flow of talent into this country and, and in other directions, but the basis of your question was making the UK an international hub. Doesn't make any sense from a scientific point of view for the benefit of this country, economically or in terms of uh, simply as an intellectual powerhouse. That's a no from me. Thank you. So it's turning to question time. <laughs> okay, we should say. Uh... It's, it's suddenly turned into question time now. We need a we comedian. Should, should say, <laughs> Russell Brand on the end say, Oi. We should say thank you. We should say thank you before we get yes. something about Do the have UKIP any? science policy. So thank you. Um, I don't have any no. notes. So that, that, that's it. Thank you thank very you much for very coming. Enjoyable. It was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Thank you.